Chris Gowsey here with Matt Howell. And this week on The First Run, David Fincher's cinematic tryst with Netflix continues as he returns to his roots with his latest, The Killer. Then I give in to Chris yet again and check out Bottoms, which attempts to answer the question, can movie teenage lesbians be creepy hornballs too? I'm sure you'll be shocked by the answer. We run down the big physical media releases of the week to get you pumped for Black Friday, give you our streaming and straight TV picks of the week, then wrap it all up with our five favorite Criterion releases. So let's take a breath and stick to the plan with Michael Fassbender as the killer. Popeye the Sailor probably said it best. I am what I am. I'm not exceptional. I'm just a part. Consider yourself lucky if our paths never cross. Except luck isn't real, nor is karma, or sadly, justice. As much as I'd like to pretend these concepts exist, they just don't. One is born, lives their life, and eventually, one dies. In the meantime, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. To quote, someone. Can't remember who. So I just want to point out for the folks listening around the globe, that Matt is actually phoning in here abroad. And I am very excited for his commitment and his dedication to the show. I'm sure all you fans are as well. You may notice changes in quality or mic stuff every now and then, uh, but bear with us because I think it's still, you know, I'm just very excited we get to do this, Matt. Talk about the killer, David Fincher's latest film. We're both a fan of Fincher's work. Is that an accurate statement? Am I that putting is, words in no, your that mouth? that is a completely accurate statement. You know this. You know this. I know this. So uh, here we go, Matt, a film that about a killer. We never get his name right. He's just the killer. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting and different about this is that it's not your typical kind of action film, big explosions or, you know, crazy assassination attempts or whatever the case may be. It brings you into the day-to-day life, the minutia, basically, of a contract killer and then kind of what would happen if things go wrong. And that is, it's purposely, Matt, cold and distance. And distant. Uh, and I'm wondering, how did that, how did you feel about that? Did you enjoy Fincher's, I, I'll say stylized, but I think not as over the top stylized as some of the stuff I think in the past he's done. Like I think the credits probably, and it's more I think about, the credits probably the most stylized thing I see in the film. And the rest of it is more is just the pacing and the shot selection and the little couple interesting things we can talk about with that as well. So what are your thoughts on the, on the killer? Did it's arm's distance and focus on showing this kind of cold, calculating, dispassionate killer and its translation into film work for you? Did you feel kind of separated from the entire affair, I guess, which is kind of the whole point? How did it work for you? Yeah, I mean, this worked great for me. I mean, to me, this was kind of a throwback to some of Fincher's earlier films. I mean, if you look back at some of the thrillers that he's done, they all have like a certain vibe to them. Right. And that vibe may change from one to one, you know, seven is very grimy and dark 
and wet. Um, whereas something like Gone Girl is again, you know, very cold, very clinical, very calculating throughout the whole thing. And I think this fits in quite well into Fincher's Ovra. Now, whether that's your thing or not, I don't know. But I think that this was is undeniably a David Fincher movie and fits right in with the bulk of his, you know, filmography. That if you're on board with it, I think you're really going to like this. I really enjoyed it. What did you think about Fassbender? And well, actually, let's backtrack on that. What did you, did you feel that though? I mean, it's that I did where I initially watched this. The film just felt kind of small to me and i don't know if it's because i was watching it on television i really wish i could have seen this like in a dolby theater or something or is it and and also colder and distant but i think that's what he's going for here right by showing this dispassionate killer that really it's just what does it stick with the plan don't improvise just but the whole thing kind of play even when there's these moments of violence or revenge i guess right it's as we as we plow through here Everything still feels very, I, I don't know how to describe it, Matt. It's kind of like just a snake weaving through the gre- through the weeds, right? Through the, through the grass the entire time. But you're still, I'm just impressed with how he's able to relay to us visually the same dispassionate feel that Fassbender's narration provides us as well. Uh, just calculating he everything is. Yeah, and I think, I don't know if I completely agree with that because it always seems that Fassbender, especially as the movie progresses, he's always quite, he's he's on the edge at any given time. And sometimes things boil over, whether it's the confrontation in the house in Florida, or if it's, you know, um, the, just talking with his wife, girlfriend, whoever it is, his significant other's brother, like all of those things, he's barely holding on to control. And sometimes anyway, he gives you those little hints, you know, the heart rate monitor, the, you know, having to keep repeating to himself, like, you know, stick to the plan, don't improvise, don't lose control. And like, because he's on the edge of losing control at any given moment. And, you know, that dispassionate part of the film is him artificially trying to keep control. And then you have those explosions of action or violence or emotion that he, that he has. Hmm. No, that's great, man. I th- I don't honestly. I think that's. I appreciate that because I don't know if I caught that entirely. I looked at it more as him just maintaining his separation from his targets, uh, and not so much seeing like maybe this percolating rage kind of underneath him. Uh, so I I like that interpretation of it a lot better. I think that works a lot better for me. So that's good. Thank you for that. The other fastbender for me is like the whole thing. He's not he's not so much of, of a fully formed person. Yeah, like he was kind of this weird enigma, just a vessel. And I think that's one of the things that Fincher's coming across with the film too, is that it's it's not just a, a peek inside the life of this hitman, but like all of us, our daily drone-like routine where we get up, we start our day, we go do our job, we do what we do, then we come home, rest, relax, and start that over again, right? I mean, for Pete's sake, Matt, the film opens in an empty WeWork building, right? So he's clearly, I think, making a statement about that as well, not just Fassbender in this in this Kitman killer role, but just us societally as well, and just doing those nine to five day to day things over and over again. Right. Did you get did you feel that at all? Yeah, or? I did. And I also think that 
you know, I think they even call out to the end at some point as he's kind of going through his getting revenge and, you know, taking on things that are personal. It's, I think his handler even says like, you have enough money to like, just go and spend it. Like, why are you still doing this? And it's a question that's never really answered, but it's kind of a question to, you know, a lot of people. I mean, at some point in your life, you're probably pretty comfortable. So then why do you have to keep doing you know, the same things that you're doing over and over and over again, just because it's become routine, just because you don't know who you are without it. I don't, I don't know. That's a scary thought. If, you know, if I don't know who I am without working in an insurance company, that's a really depressing thing to think about. <laughs> well, you, you're, you're a man, oh, that's co-host true. of the first run. <laughs> I'd probably throw in father. Mm, husband yeah, true. As well, the, the, those are secondary and tertiary to this host of the <laughs> podcast. Sure. Absolutely. So let's talk a few minutes in about why well, I want to talk about Fassbender. How'd you feel about him? I think that he does a fantastic job in this. Um, now, and then thinking about a better through your perspective now, it makes me want to rewatch it and, and, and catch more on that. You're right, because he keeps looking at his heart rate. You know, he has to get it down to a certain level before he'll take it a shot, whatever the case may be. Uh, that and his narration as well. Again, very calm, very monotone. When he's delivering it, I guess, like you're saying, belying underneath this potential simmer, simmering rage, this volcanic rage, willing, just waiting to come out to inflict as much pain and violence on people as he can, which we do eventually get in that Florida house attack, which I do want to talk about a little bit in detail. But uh, what are your thoughts here on Fast Matter, which basically who has to carry the whole film, independent of, you know, the, the one little chatty scene he gets with Tilda Swinton yeah. at the end of the film? Yeah, I think he's great in it. I think um, he really commits to the this kind of uh, psychopathic person who's kind of disassociated himself from the, all this horrible things that he does and that it's just a job and it's just something that if he doesn't do, somebody else is going to do, so why not him kind of thing. And like even at the end, though, like he still manages to just convey this kind of inner, you know, the the what's the still waters run deep kind of thing. There's, there's motion underneath that kind of placid surface. And he's, you know, when he's talking with Tilda Swinton, he doesn't say anything for a long time, but he looked, he's got crazy eyes. And like, you can tell like everybody, every muscle in his body is just clenched. His jaw is clenched. And like, he looks like he's still in control, but he's like a seconds away from like taking her out, like right there in, in public. And He's really fighting his urges to do that. And it's just like all that kind of stuff over and over. And at the same time, sometimes this facade breaks and he just shows how exhausted he is. And it's just a, for a this horrible human being that can that has obviously all kinds of uh, lack of emotions and lack of, of conscious and morals and stuff like that. He brings a lot of depth to it. Yeah. And about a few people, I think, could do dead behind the eyes as well as Fastbender does mm-hmm. in this film. Mm-hmm. But I think you're right. That scene, they're seen with with Charles Parnell, who is his handler, the lawyer, mm-hmm. right? But particularly the scene with Tilda Swinton, which initially I was a little concerned that was just, it felt almost kind of added to, to bring more dialogue and exposition or at least conversation back into the film. Uh, it didn't feel quite as organic as some of the other parts of the film did for me, though I still think it worked. But my favorite part of that scene and why I think I may forgive any of the, as I say, I think at times forced dialogue interaction of it is 
when he walks in, when he sits down in front of her, right, and the waiter comes in, the, the, you can, like you're saying, you can feel the the tension in that room. Like the waiter, everybody knows something is off mm-hmm. and something is wrong. Mm-hmm. But all he's doing basically there is sitting there, right? right? And it's it's a real testament to, I think, to the what to, fin- to Fincher's shot selection, his camera use, and then particularly Fassbender. And the way, like you say, he's just sitting there just ready to do something right at any moment. So yeah, I don't know. That's, I think that's a great part of it too. It's weird that I struggle a bit with that scene, but in the end, I think it wins me over because of that. You can just feel the whole, it's like, it's, you know, this is going to be very dramatic, but it's like the earth shifts on its axis and that for some reason, the way just, it's this unsettling, weird kind of feeling that you have um, when that scene takes place. Maybe that's probably why I struggle with it because it is so, I think subconsciously unsettled. Yeah, well, and you have the juxtaposition. So, like, Tilda Swinton's playing this killer, but she's, like, the direct opposite of him. She's very charming. She's very mm-hmm. verbose. You know, she's very disarming kind of thing. And he is just, you know, a tightly wound psychopath that's just <laughs> waiting for somebody to point him in a, in a particular direction kind of thing. Yeah. So then I just want to talk briefly then about the uh, the brute, right, the assassin in Florida and that house fight. And I can't recall seeing an action scene. This is the big action scene in the film where he actually has to fight somebody who's able to stand toe-to-toe with him here. And I can't really, even like with the Wick films and how beautifully choreographed they are and how brutal they are, there was something about the dynamism of the scene that I can't quite put my finger on. I'm thinking what it may be. Is a it's not just the lighting. This is a very, for the most part, kind of dark film, um, but not just the lighting in it. But also, I swear, I'm almost positive that Fincher cuts a couple frames because it seems to move in this almost kind of ethereal kind of way where it's not it's not really sped up, but it and it's a little jumpy, but it never feels like uh, uh, I don't know, like wholesale, like you've cut something out of it. But I do feel like maybe there's a frame or two or brought me right back to Fight Club, right? When they're in the movie theater and he inserts the picture, right? But that's what I feel like. He cut like one or two frames, like every few seconds or every minute or two. And that's kind of, it gives us this jarring feel to it. Did you feel anything like that while you were watching it? Yeah, I think it was an interesting fight scene. I think I was more focused on the fact that he, I think more the the dynamics of it where he almost seems surprised that this guy's fighting back. And like, he's not like, I mean, he's a, he's good at what he does, but he's not like the ultimate badass like John wick is. So I appreciated that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think you're right. I think there is something going on there, but I, I would love to watch it again, just to at least that scene to see if I pick up on that movement. Yeah. Good times, Matt. Any uh, other thoughts on the killer for you? Uh, no, I mean, uh, this is, again, a return to form of probably one of my top 10 favorite directors. Not that he's really ever made a truly bad film, but, uh, I'm, I will say this might be one of my favorite straight to streaming or day and day streaming, uh, films that I've seen in a long, long time. Yeah. And I would just add to that Atticus Ross and, uh, Trent Reznor reunite to provide another score here for Fincher. And... This film, Matt, the, the score in it is really different. It felt organic, almost like it's a living thing. It's not 
traditional music strings, guitar, violins, you know, uh, drums, whatever the case may be. It felt like this odd living experience that I I can't really even describe how it made me feel. It was just very odd, very like there was like bubbling, like lots of weird little aspects of it that I really enjoyed. But it was definitely more place sitting, uh, you know, than it was uh, propulsion of scene movements and moving us on. It was it was atmosphere and uh, ambience more so than anything else. I really I'm curious to kind of hear it independent of the film. I'm not 100 percent sure it'll work independently because of how I feel an integral it is and how unusual it is. So I don't know. I'll have to hear that again. I'm sure I can stream it on you know, Apple Music or uh, whatever it is the kids use now- nowadays. So, Matt, what would you uh, give the killer? Give us a grade. Um, I'm hovering around. I want to say that I think as a faux movie critic who has 10 years of podcast experience, I want to say it's A-, minus, but I'm going to give it an A because of how much I enjoyed it. Yeah, I'm actually at A minus myself. So there you go. I got you covered, buddy. Thank you. At least one of us has integrity. It's usually me. <laughs> let's be honest. <laughs> That's true. If you had a chance to see The Killer, which is currently streaming on Netflix, shoot us an email at feedback at thefirstrun.com. What are the odds you think we get a, a physical release of this at some point? That's a part stuff that upsets mm. me. Um, what other? Well, I mean, Netflix, I think, has been generally pretty good about releasing their stuff on on physical right i mean like yeah their prestige stuff they i think they have an agreement with criteria yeah so i'm i'm pretty confident it will it's not like a prime apple's a real bad yeah and apple's really bad too but you know amazon's pretty bad i'm still waiting i'm still waiting on my barbarian 4k uh version amazon that's max yeah Yeah. no that's max oh it is hbo i thought that was on on prime huh okay no barbarian was max okay all right well i'm well whoever's got it i'm still waiting I haven't gotten it yet. Yeah. You can, there's, there's ways, <laughs> there's ways to get a physical copy of that in some capacity. We don't condone any of that stuff, Matt. So don't know why you brought it up. Coming up on physical media, this upcoming Tuesday, November 21st. Uh, this is getting released in 4k and, um, we'll talk about that and more. I can't hear anything. My, my ear is, uh, I can't believe you did that. You think I should have bargained with that guy? Yeah. I do. You could have missed. You could have killed me. Yeah. How bad's that ear? It's terrible. I'm going to have permanent hearing damage. Let me see it. Can you hear what I'm saying now? Yeah. There you go, Matt. You have the 4K release, the 30th anniversary, dear God, I'm old, of The Fugitive being released with a 4K restoration of the film, Dolby Atmos audio track, HDR presentation, introduction by the director, Andrew Davis, along with Harrison Ford, audio commentary by Davis with Tommy Lee Jones, and uh, more. I don't think I've owned The Fugitive in any physical media outside of VHS mm. back in the day. Yeah, I don't think. What about you? I don't think I have it on DVD either. I think I might have had it on VHS, but I think I think the same. 
It's one of those films that comes on TNT all the time, so you just kind of watch it. Yeah, I have not seen it, though, in a long time. It's uh, no Blu-ray in this one, though. It's just a 4K disc and a digital code. And a really bad, just not a fan of the, uh, what is it? I'm a, I have a passion for design uh, slipcover. <laughs> so, yeah, that's it's pretty rough. The Steelbook actually looks a little cooler, but, um, yeah, I don't think that's not worth the premium. So you can pick that up on November 21st. Also, Matt... Police Academy collection is coming out from Shack Factory, and that, of course, is our number five. So you, you get all the films, Matt. Uh, you know, Gutenberg. How many Police Academy films are there? Let's do this. Uh, I want to say five, seven. So. How many of them features feature Steve Gutenberg as Mahoney? Three, four. Okay. So there you go. You get two K restorations of all seven films. The new featurettes featuring uh, brand new interviews with some of the producers, writers. Uh, assistant directors and stuff. Uh, audio commentary on Police Academy 4, Citizens on Patrol. The original Police Academy has an audio commentary featuring Gutenberg, Michael Winslow, Leslie Easterbrook, uh, the director, Hugh Wilson. Uh, some additional scenes and well. So again, it's it's Police Academy, right? And then it's their first assignments, part two. Part three is back in training. Four, Citizens on Patrol. Five, Assignment Miami Beach. Six, City Under Siege. And seven, Mission to Moscow. I think I've seen... One, two, three, four, and six. Okay. The only one I can remember is the first one and the fourth one for some reason. I remember Citizens on Patrol very vividly for some reason. Yeah, yeah. What else we got, Matt? What's, uh, what comes after five? Four! Expendables. What were the four? Expend, expend four bowls. <laughs> Amazon has an exclusive slip case. Best Buy has a 4K steelbook. Dolby Atmos audio track as well as Dolby Vision audio commentary by the director, Scott Wow. Um, some featurettes. I hear this is atrocious. Really? Just horrible. It's hyper-violent, too, from what I understand. Like, uh, I saw the uh, Red Band trailer, and it's got a whole ton of, like, blood and explosions and people, like, blowing up and stuff like that. Kind of like when they amped up the gore for uh, Rambo 4. Same thing. So... You got that going for you. I, I'm sure maybe I'll watch it at some point, mm-hmm. but this is like, yeah, I don't, I can't even remember the, th- you know, I can't really remember any of them now that I think about it. I know Arnold came back in one of them. I think in the second one, that's the one you were super excited for. Yeah, because Arnold and Bruce, uh, Bruno, I think were right. in that one. Yeah, no, it's really just atrocious stuff there. Get three coffins ready. Uh huh. Oh, Matt, I, my order's all screwed up. I have an extra one in here. How do you like that? Uh, how do I like that? The Unknown Country is being released by Music Box, uh, written and starred, starring, written by and starring Lily Gladstone of uh, one of my favorite films of the year, if not my favorite film of the year up to this point, Killers of the Black Flower Moon, Black Moon, Killers <laughs> of the Flower Moon. Gladstone plays a young woman. I can talk. Grieving for past losses, who receives an unexpected invitation, leading her to a solitary road trip across the American Midwest. Your second number three, Matt, I'm going to go with Saw 10. Audio commentary by the director, editor, Kevin Grudit, who did a couple other ones that are really, really bad, but I actually didn't hate this one. There's a multi-part making of documentary, some deleted scenes, and more. And now we're back on track, Matt, for number two. Looks like we're shy one horse. <laughs> You brought two too many. 
Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer map being released uh, in 4K. Best Buy has a steel book. Walmart has a 4K digipack. It comes, Matt, with uh, two shifting aspect ratio presentations. So, Or maybe it's just you can choose which one. No, it's just mixed. 2.20, 1.78. Uh, that way you get the uh, experience, the whole shift in aspect ratio as viewed in select theatrical locations for the ultimate in-home viewing. There's a making of featurette and then a cast and crew conversations and a whole bunch of other special features on this, Matt. So I will be picking up Oppenheimer. Hopefully it'll get a little cheaper. It's so close to Black Friday, but it's it's just coming out. So the odds are not good that it's going to be on sale for pretty cheap, unfortunately. Yeah. Will you be picking up Oppenheimer? Yeah, eventually. I mean, I think by next year, I think we won't see it come down appreciably until like summer of next year at the earliest. Yeah. And I like, too, that Nolan, he's doing some kind of promo when he talked about how, you know, you should pick it up because your streaming services can't pull it from their content, right? So that way you'll always have a copy. They can't come to your house and take it off your shelf, basically. I think <laughs> They would if they could. They would delete it right out of your hard drive if they could. I'm absolutely sure they would. Uh, and then, finally, this is for you. There can be only one! Criterion is putting out Mean Streets, Matt, in 4K. Mm-hmm. This is a jointly funded uh, restoration with Second Sight. Now, here's what we're going to talk about. It. So it's approved by Scorsese as well as uh, Schoonmaker. Uh, and then you get ex- excerpted conversations between Scorsese and Richard Linklater from a 2011 Directors Guild of America event. Selected scene audio commentary, new video essay, interview with the director of photography, Ken Wakeford. Excerpts from directory Mardik, Baghdad to Hollywood, featuring Mean Street's co-writer Mardik Martin as well as Scorsese and more. And uh, the second, here's the thing. Second Sight put out, remember, this is a joint funded restoration, so it's the same transfer. Second Sight is a releasing company in the UK. They have a 4K set with a Blu-ray. The thing is, remember I talked about excerpts Mm -hmm. of this, excerpt from that? The Second Sight has the full thing of all those things. The only problem is it's on the Blu-ray, which will be, I believe, region locked. So if you have a region-free DVD player or Blu-ray player, you may want to get the Second Sight one because, hey, the 4K transfer is still the same, but you get more features. You also get a rigid slipcase. You get a 178-page book with new essays in it written by a bunch of people, as well as eight collector's art cards, which I don't really care so much about that. But there's more to the set. So if you have a region-free player, I would recommend getting importing the Second Sight one. You can get it from... Uh, uh, Grindhouse Video, Diabolic DVD, and I think Orbit DVD. Uh, all three of them should be ca- able to carry it. You can pick it up from them. Sorry, Criterion. It's just that that set seems so much nicer than the uh, Criterion one. I still, so I have my region free Blu-ray player, player mat. Still in the box. What? What is your deal, my friend? <laughs> I have no time. <laughs> then you need to stop I have buying no stuff. time. I have no time. I know. I, I keep thinking that this weird thing where I'll magically be able to come up with more time to do stuff. And it just, I'm here with you, which really there's no other place I'd rather be. <laughs> That's a lot. Other 4K releases. <laughs> Love Actually is getting released with a brand new making of feature included. Uh, Stalag 17 being released in 4K. And then there's a Resident Evil Steelbook collection being released in 4K. The Resident Evil films are released in 4K before, but this is like a repackage in steel. Straight to DVD pick of the week, Matt. I'm going to go with Ninja vs. Shark. And the Edo is the Edo period yeah. at the remote village of Okitsu. The evil cult leader, Koshihiro, uses ninjutsu to ensorcel, which is a word I've never seen before, ensorcel sharks and force them to attack local pearl drivers, bot divers, 
so they can so the cult can steal the pearls from their mangled corpses. Desperate for help, the village chief hires Kotaro Shizaki, a guard at our nearby temple, but Kotaro soon finds his path blocked by Lady Ninja Kikuma and a gigantic shark that doesn't seem like something from this world. If you're able to kind of work through my mangled reading of that explanation of what that movie is about, then maybe you'll want to check it out. Matt, what should we be streaming this week? Well, besides The Killer, which is available on Netflix for your viewing pleasure, I look back to see what else from David Fincher was available. I think not a lot, actually. There's a lot of uh, Fincher movies are not available on streaming services, but of the few that are, I'm going to recommend you pair The Killer with Gone Girl, which is available on HBO Max, if you want to see Rosamund Pike be super creepy and Ben Affleck really be dumb. Yeah, that, that's a good pick, Matt. That's good. Uh, just going to give everybody a heads up. Uh, by the time this is posted, maybe some of these deals won't be live, but obviously we're staring down uh, Black Friday right now, and Amazon and Best Buy and not so much Walmart are having a lot of cheap 4Ks right now. I picked up today The Untouchables. It was $7.99, Matt, with a 20% off coupon on top nice. of that. And then I also picked up uh, The Wolf of Wall Street, which I have no, don't have an owner in any capacity, trying to you know, stuck up on my Scorsese. Again, that one, seven ninety nine. dollars Where was that? And, At um, Amazon or, or Best Buy? Uh, both. Okay. And uh, Best Buy is doing free shipping on that stuff too. So you don't really have to worry about the Amazon Prime extra discount of getting this stuff shipped for free. I was able to get both of them shipped to me at no extra cost. So there you go, kids. Lots of good stuff on there though right now. And uh, Matt, I want to spend two minutes or so and talk about Shatner. Okay. Last week, I got to see... The Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, with a Q&A with uh, my good buddy Bill after the film. And it was fun to see it in the theater. It is a place called the Straz Center. So it's like a performing theater, right, with the big stage and all that stuff. And the uh, the problem you have with those kind of theaters or with theatrical presentations is that the there's always kind of like a little subtle echo a little bit, you know, it's not like crystal clear. Like you feel like at a Dolby theater or something, but still looks fantastic. Sounded great for the most part. Uh, it was the director's cut, which I was surprised by, but it was. And then, uh, Shatner came out and he just riffed basically for about an hour plus. And he, they had done some questions ahead of time. They'd taken for people. There was like tables all around. You could submit a question to him and he would answer it. A couple of quick things. The Ricardo Montalban story about his chest being real. Shatner confirmed that. He said that is absolutely true. Yeah, which I, I know that people have gone back and forth on that. We also added that at the time, Montalban was in a wheelchair for, for a lot. He had hip issues for a long time. He had a lot of trouble getting around. I guess near the end of his life, too. He just couldn't really stand anymore. It was light on con trivia. Not a lot there. Uh, part of it was the writer's strike, Matt, had actually just ended like an hour or two before. Okay. And he was telling a story about he was going through and talking about, he's been on tour doing this for a while. And the, the union basically said, you can't talk about Star Trek. You can't even mention the words during the strike. He's like, I'm touring Star Trek 2. <laughs> what are you talking about? So thankfully it lifted, though I think he was cheating a little bit on the side there too. He probably mentioned a couple things. My favorite story I think he told was at one point to Forrest Kelly, was um, on the uh, filming of, I think it was part three. I can't remember now. But he's talking to Bill. Maybe it was part two. He's talking to, to Bill there. And he's like, Bill, I'm starting to freak out. Like, I'm forgetting things, like, all the time. Like, I, I lose my keys. I can't find my wallet. I'm forget I, I think I'm losing my mind. 
And Shatner's like, no, come on. Come on, D. He called him D, too. They never called him DeForest. Called him D, which I thought was cool. D, don't worry about it. You're fine. You're fine. So at one point, uh, Nimoy shows up. So DeForest Kelly goes to talk to him. And what happened is, though, DeForest Kelly put a bagel in the little toaster, Mm -hmm. you know, because they're having breakfast before shooting. And uh, he puts it in, and then he goes talk to to, to Nimoy. So Shatner comes in and takes the bagel out and eats it real fast and then puts the timer back, you know, pushes it down again. So DeForest comes back and it pops and there's no bagel. And he looks, Shatner looks at him and like DeForest is starting to freak out a little bit. Like, oh my, wait, did I, did I put the bagel in there? I did. Did I put the bagel? So he puts it in, puts it back in. And then Shatner comes back around to him and says, oh, Leonard wants to ask you a question, actually. So DeForest, he goes back over to talk to him. He does the same thing. And he comes, then DeForest comes back and the thing pops and there's no bagel in there. And he does it a third time, right? Now DeForest is really getting pissed off. And uh, he turns, after the third time the, the toaster pops, he looks over at Shatner. And Shatner's got this, like, supposedly this big shit eating grin on his face. And he, he got really, really angry and started throwing stuff at him. That was a fun story. And then there was another issue, too, where I guess DeForest had a dog that he really liked. And something happened to the dog. And it, it like it oh it was a small dog, okay. and it ran into a sprinkler and died. What? Yeah, I guess he, I don't know what happened. Something happened. To the dog died, and DeForest Kelly was telling him the story about that. And Shatner said he laughed at him because the dog was so small. Like, how do you get killed by a sprinkler? <laughs> and they said that DeForest didn't talk to him for like three days after. Yeah, that. all right. So I guess. No, I was just gonna say. I mean, that just. Uh... Goes to show you that uh, Bill Shatner would loved antagonizing his uh, co-stars and why they didn't like him, probably. Yeah, he talked a few minutes about his friendship with Nimoy, how close they were for a while, and then I guess as as he got ill and sicker and sicker, I guess he, he I'd forgotten this, he died from emphysema, which I guess is almost feels like you're slowly drowning. Um, that he kind of just pulled pulled away and he kind of got more into more solitude so he didn't actually talk to him for like the last year or so of his life and um at one point one of the questions to shatner was what were you thinking during that death of spock scene in, in wrath of Khan? like what was in your mind you know to get to that point what were you thinking of and shatner in classic shatter move changes it says you mean what was i thinking when kirk died that's what you mean right so he answers that question instead so he can still focus on himself. Just, it was a blast. Entertaining, Matt. I'm hope I'm that vibrant at 90 plus. I think he's like 90, 91. And he just, man, guy's got a motor in him. Let me tell you. You know, just a lot of fun. Very funny. And uh, yeah, it was a really great experience. So if you have a chance to see Shatner hosting Star Trek 2, I'd say check it out. Uh, I didn't, I didn't pop for the uh, meet and greet afterwards we get to have a photo with him um but still it was uh it was a fun experience and i'm glad i did it so i'm glad you had a good time and you got to see bill shatner in the flesh yes got to yeah right up there i was only about 10 rows back so it was nice and close too so there you go folks all right let's go ahead keep rolling and spend a few minutes talking about bottoms something that matt did for me thanks buddy I can't believe they're letting you guys start a fight club. No, they're they're not. We are not. What are you talking about? We're going to do it. We're doing it. PJ, I wasn't being serious. Josie, did you see the way that Isabel and Brittany were looking at us? Also, you heard the announcements. 
girls are terrified. It's perfect. They need this. Okay, no, they need like mace, maybe. We can't do that, okay? We'd be misleading them. Guys do that all the time, okay? That's the point of feminism. That's not the point of feminism. You also don't care about feminism. Your favorite show is Entourage. You're missing the point. I don't really think I am. We don't know how to fight. You guys probably fought girls in juvie. No, we were lying about that, obviously. <laughs> about juvie? Yeah, I mean, why what? would you lie to me? You were the one who said we went to juvie. I just didn't correct you. Listen, self-defense is instinctual common sense. You try to punch me in the face, I stop it from happening. Whatever, I don't care. It's easy. Look, this is how we do this. Okay, we start with Taekwondo, which I've got covered. And then you guys can move on to air punches. Ha, ba, 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 ba. <sighs> Who do we know? Who do we know? I'll bring Stella Rebecca. You, you know, know Stella, Stella Rebecca? Rebecca? Stella Rebecca who models at car conventions in Chicago on the weekends? Yeah, we're family friends. Okay, great. Well, then bring her. <sighs> Matt, directed and co-written by Emma Segelman, who did Shiva Baby that I called Shiva Baby for the entire episode. Uh, also co-written by uh, Rachel Senat, who stars in the film as well, with uh, Ayo uh, Edebiri. And it is the story of uh, two wildly unpopular uh, lesbian friends at their high school and they're desperate to hook up with two of the you know the most attractive girls at the school a couple of cheerleaders there and they come up with this idea to start a self-defense club not a fight club Matt, a self-defense club uh to then try and get those girls to kind of fall in love with them and matt i appreciate you doing this was it worth your time did you feel like all right I enjoyed that. Thanks, Chris. Or were you like, God, this is just a waste of my time? Yeah, I think uh, I think it's the former. I think this film has enough going for it where it's entertaining. Now, if you look at the breathless reviews on like Letterboxd and the glut of four and five star, uh, I think I think this might be the highest rated film that I've seen anywhere on Letterboxd. And uh, I wouldn't go that far. I think it's good. It's not hilarious. It walks this kind of weird line between being this absurdist comedy or a throwback to like things like uh, not another teen movie or these kind of 2000s, late 90s teen films. And when I was on board with this is when I when it was really leaning hard into like the absurdist angle of it. I thought it was great and I was having a really good time. Other times it was just, you know, it was it was okay. Like I I chuckled a little bit, but I didn't have a lot of guffaws when it was turning to be a little bit more serious. I think there's a lot of good jokes in here. I think it's very good. I don't think it's an all time great, but that's just me. Well, Matt, chuck me up with the uh, the folks on Letterboxd because I was laughing my hinder off this ent- the entire time. I thought this film was hilarious. Matt, I, I'm i watching this thing and I'm like, this is a generational defining comedy. It, I, I was blown away by this film. I, I'm part of that group then. I thought it was absolutely hilarious. I was watching this on the airport, on the air, the flight to, on my flight there. And I just, I had to keep kind of stifling my laughter because my uh my my better half was uh working on some stuff and it's so ribald and raunchy at times so over the top um but i really i was choking down the laughter and i almost cried a couple times from laughing i i love the absurdist nature of this thing i love like this the jocks are always in their uniforms pads included and when they're practicing on the field they're all (laughs) it's just all very weird and bizarre like you say it's absurdist 
the rival high school perpetuates this literal violence against them regularly. They've been building up what for the big homecoming mm-hmm. game for twenty years. Mm-hmm. You know, it's lots of weird kind of stuff like that, and it's this placing the exaggerated high school sex comedy in this you know with an empowering I think female and gay lens was. I think really smart and interesting and funny. It's it it's mocking those kind of classic comedies from the eighties as well as I think properly honoring them as well. It's a really difficult balance, and I think Bottoms uh, maintains it all the way through. It's I I don't know, Matt. I just think it's absolutely it's it's a great film. I think it have, may have my best um, my favorite total clips of the heart needle drop I've ever seen in a film. And I loved all the small side stuff. You got this is a film where you got to look in the background and watch stuff because there's always another joke in the background that you may not be catching or that you may miss. The the dialogue delivery is also very rapid fire. There's like one scene where they're in the principal's office and the principal's all upset because they think that he thinks that the two women may have cost them the, the aim because the they're they're. Is it the muscle, the muscle ripped, most handsome football p- quarterback we've ever had at this or? was a muscled ripped most handsome person ever at this school maybe not be able to play and like one of them says like well maybe you should look in the mirror actually you know and you know just little things like that that delivered so fast that they're just absolutely hilarious matt i loved bottoms i loved it i mean i don't think you said anything particularly different than what i said i mean the absurdest parts of it are fantastic i think the football players are hands down the the weirdest part of this whole thing. Like I couldn't see where this was going with that. Um, The, again, the, the kind of climax where it turns on to, you think everybody's just a bunch of hyperbole where you really find out that this football game that everybody's talking about is a, is a literal death match where someone is going to die kind of thing. And it's, (laughs) I I loved that part of it. I loved Marshawn Lynch being weird uh, and mm-hmm. being out of place. But then when you have the kind of typical, you know, speechifying or, or, you know, those, some of those rapid fire jokes, like you're talking about, they don't, didn't always hit for me. And maybe they, and, that, and that's nothing wrong with that. I don't think it's not funny. I just, uh, maybe it's one of those things that all grow on me for the record. I didn't think Anchorman was very funny the first time I saw it. It just got better every time I happened to catch it. Well, maybe that's what it is. I mean, all the little touch, like I love that Lynch is reading divorced and happy and that's the special big booty issue. <laughs> uh, at one point they say they're studying for Mr. G's women murdered in history test. I mean, it's just lots of little things like that. Uh, there's a guy in a cage in one of the classrooms. Uh, just, you know, I don't know. I love, like you said, Matt, the absurdist nature of the thing was just, it just hooked me in and I fell in love with it from the very beginning and it just did not let up for me. It's uh, I really hope that this film kind of finds its audience really it's i don't know if maybe it's a little too weird for some people it's cost about 11.3 to make and it made 12.3 so not great not great but i mean it's but, not like it had um, any really marketing budget because it's not like this was marketed at all yeah no that's true so i don't know maybe i, I think it's destined to become a cult classic at the very least and uh yeah I absolutely love the map. I'm giving uh, Bottoms. Uh, it's my second one. It's an A minus again. Really? Uh, yeah, I agree with you wholeheartedly. This is going to be a cult classic. This is going to be a film that's in heavy rotation uh, for, you know, a certain set of people. You know, the Gen Z set. I will say. I think we're on the tail end of Gen X here. The youngest Gen X. Uh, I think there's 
this is going to have legs. This is going to have a long life further down the road and someday we'll get bottoms to you know when the main characters are all in their 40s and we'll wonder why kind of thing so i i think i'm gonna give this a b minus i enjoyed Mm -hmm. it i thought it was pretty funny it'll have to see what happens if it stands up on repeat viewings i am uh i think i'm i have 20 minutes left on joyride And I don't know if we're going to do it for the show, so I won't say too much about it. But I don't think it's as successful as Bottoms is so okay. far. Fair so, enough. I don't know. We'll see if we do it for the show. All right, kids. Let's wrap up the show and spend a few minutes talking about our five favorite Criterion Collection releases. Hitting the rock from the outside won't do the job. Imagine a firecracker in the palm of your hand. You set it off. What happens? Burn your hand, right? You close your fist around the same firecracker and set it off. Your wife's going to be opening your ketchup bottles the rest of your life. Are you suggesting that we blow this thing up from the inside? That's exactly what I'm saying. How? We drill. We bring in the world's best deep core driller. Spine number 40, Matt. Michael Bay's Armageddon. That's crazy. It's that crazy to me that it got a Criterion release to bring in, bring in the world's greatest driller. Is there such a thing? No, there's not, Billy Bob Thornton. That doesn't exist. What's the weirdest one? Is it Armageddon or The Rock? Because they're, they're both uh, Criterions. Releases. I would say it's Armageddon because The Rock is delightful and it's Nick, Nick Cage slash uh, Sean Connery juxtaposition. That's spot number 108. Out of print, I guess I'm going to have to pay extra money for that on DVD for the Criterion Collection. That's disappointing, Matt. All right, let's go. Start us off. What's your fifth favorite Criterion release? All right, so my number five then is one of the all-time great films. Um, One of my earlier introductions, not the first film that I saw of this director, but it is Akira Kurosawa's Rashomon. Now, all of Mm -hmm. Akira Kurosawa's films, I think pretty much all of them have the Criterion treatment or at least the kind of his really kind of big landmark films and Rashomon is an absolute standout. It is a fantastic film that tells a story of a crime and an event that kind of twists at depending on who's relaying the story to you. And Kurosawa keeps playing back the same event from different points of view to make you unsure of what actually happened. And it's got all kinds of, things that were innovative at the time that have become, that were so innovative. They just almost become cliches as far as visually goes and storytelling goes, but it's still a masterclass and uh, the criterion packages is worth the price. Yeah. Rashomon is the first Kurosawa film I saw as well. And it started my love for kind of a international film. I've owned it on, I bought the DVD. Then I upgraded to the Blu-ray when it came out, uh, just edged out, for me um but still yeah Rashomon is absolutely one of my favorite films so that's a that's a great pick Matt thank you my number five then is my Godzilla collection all the uh, Toho Godzilla films uh in one beautiful big ass book if you haven't seen it Criterion sale is going on right now Barnes and Noble too folks so you can still you can pick it up now 50% off but I've watched I think three of them so far 
Uh, and it's just a blast having them all in that one collection. And that first Godzilla film too, though, is still before it turned into the weird kind of hokey, corny mm-hmm. Godzilla that we all kind of know and love. That the first one is more of a tale about well, you know, it's it's basically Japan dealing with the aftermath or of the of World War II and the dropping of the atomic bombs. So, still, uh, it's a great set. It's beautifully done, put together. Uh, and it has all those films and lots of cool little features and it's got really Ill- great illustrations in it as well. So yeah, that Godzilla set is my five. All right. So my number four is uh, George Romero's Night of the Living Dead, a film that you can find all over the damn place because as we've mentioned many times, he screwed up the copyright. It has been in the public domain basically since its release, but the Criterion Treatment I think is the definitive home version of it that you can get right now. It's got all kinds of incredible extras and I'm not even much of an extra guy, but I've watched every single one of them and they are fantastic. Um, Reels, uh, versions, early versions of it that are storyboarded out, old films that were kind of inspired by this. So just lots and lots of stuff to get into it. And honestly, it's still one of the most influential horror films ever. It basically created a genre out of whole cloth and maybe the greatest student film of all time. Yeah. Uh, it's my number four as well, Matt. And one of the big things I love about it too, that it has night of, of Anubis in it, which is the uh, previously never presented uh, work print edit of mm-hmm. the film. And it's included on this set. And I have the Blu-ray. They released it in 4k, I think last yeah. year. Uh, and it was a 4k scan originally or digital restoration. So I have not upgraded it to 4k. I, I don't think I ever really will. Because uh, this this Blu-ray print, this Blu-ray version is still it looks great and sounds great too. So, but yeah, I think having that night of Anubis was really the the clincher for me to getting this. Another thing too is that they, from what I understand, it they paid the Romero estate properly. Nice. They didn't just since it was in the public domain just run with it. They really did the right thing in regards to to him and his family. So, yeah, now Night of Living Dead is my number four nice. as well. All right, so my number three then is a film that's near and dear to my heart. Um, It was a favorite of mine in what is affectionately called the salad days where there's a a lot of uh, experimenting with substances, figuring out who you are. And of course I'm talking about Terry Gilliam's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas where Johnny Depp channels Hunter S. Thompson with Benicio Del Toro playing an insane lawyer Dr. Gonzo, as they travel across a drug-fueled set of nights in Las Vegas as they go to predominantly cover a race. It is a film that just talks about the, the end of the 60s, the, 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 the lie that the kind of uh, summer of love kind of led and told to everybody and what it was all kind of really like. And I still quote, lines from that film i mean i I still say you know as your attorney i advise you to do x and nobody gets it but i i know what's going on (laughs) i think i still say we can't stop here this is bat country once in a while too i'm on a road trip that's a good one matt my number three then i I guess it's a bit of a cheat it was one of the first box sets i ever bought uh, while i was still working at uh borders matt and it was the Wrong Men and Notorious Women box set, which include uh, five Hitchcock films, Notorious, Rebecca, Spellbound, The 39 Steps, and The Lady Vanishes. 
And uh, probably my favorite of the bunch is probably Notorious. Then Rebecca, maybe spelled, I don't know, man. They're all great, though. And he has a couple really early 1930s British films in there, which is Their Nine Steps and The Lady Vanishes, both. But uh, it was a great little introduction to me. I'd seen, I'd been a fan of Hitchcock at the time, and I'd seen kind of the big films, but I wanted to get a little deeper into the man's oeuvre. Mm-hmm. And uh, buying this box set um, was my real foray into his work to really dig deep into all the other stuff. So I still have it on my shelf, even though I've upgraded uh, a few of the films since. It, it's got a, it's just a cardboard slip case that kind of goes over the whole set, but it looks really sharp on my shelf. So I've always held on to it, but that's my uh, three, The Wronged Men and Notorious Women. So I think you can still get it. You can, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know anymore. But it's all DVDs, so you might be able to get it pretty cheap if you wanted to. There you go. All right, so my number two then is uh, the film collection of one of my favorite action stars. One of the things that drove my love to one of my very strange uh, niche film genre uh I don't know what's the word I'm looking for. Film genres that I adore, which is the Bruce Lee collection. It collects all of his Hong Kong output. Um, and honestly, they're just an incredible set of, of action films of their time. The The choreography is still excellent. And honestly, as much as Chris says that you have to watch the sub, these films, do yourself a favor watch them in the original 70s dub it really adds a lot to the charm of these films and uh watching that kind of bad 70s dub makes it just chef's kiss so fantastic yeah no that's 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 fair matt that's fair my number two then for the longest time it was the only way to see the nc-17 version of this film Actually, no, this is before NC-17, Matt, so this would be the rated X version of this film on DVD, and that is spine number 23, Matt, RoboCop. I have it just basically just as a collector's item now. I mean, you can pick this up pretty cheap. They've released the unrated version, the original director's cut of RoboCop, in Blu-ray and 4K. I mean, it's, it's not rare anymore, but at the time when this came out, this was a big deal. It was the only way to see the full version of the film because it was just so hyper-violent. And uh, so, you know, the collector, the nostalgia in me made me hold on to it. So that's, uh, I guess that's my number two is my Criterion Robocop. And I like the cover of it too, where it's basically just like a steel, I don't know, it looks like a steel box type of a thing with Robocop embossed or just, you know, printed into it. So, uh, yeah, there you All go. Right. Well, my number one then is, uh, I'll book in my list of, uh, with another Akira Kurosawa film, uh, it is The Seven Samurai. It is basically the film. It was the first Criterion, you know, purchase that I ever made. It was essentially, if you were friends with people who were into the movies in the late '90s, early 2000s, if you looked at their collection, they almost to a person had this in it. It is. Uh, a masterpiece of the form. Um, it inspired things like the Magnificent Seven, a an excellent film in its own right. Uh, but there's nothing quite like this uh, opus from Akira Kurosawa. That's my number one as wow. well, Matt. I had it on DVD, then I upgraded to the Blu-ray here, and 
I'm still hoping maybe at some point they'll do a 4K restoration of this. Maybe just the film elements just don't exist for that. This is just a, what a high definition digital digital transfer. So you would think, I don't know, maybe it's a rights mm. issue, though this is still available. So I can't imagine someone you would think somewhere would be working on a 4K restoration if it was possible. It just might not be. I haven't heard anything. I'll have to do some digging online on that. But lots of great special features on this one as well. It's got a 50-minute documentary in the making of the film. And a two-hour interview conversation with Kurosawa and Nagasi Yoshima. Uh, it's just a ton of stuff. And it looks gorgeous as well. And uh, though Rashomon was my first... What was my first criterion? Was it Rashomon? It might have been. I think Rashomon was one. Robocop may have been two. And I think Seven Samurai was three. I remember going to Trinity College, Matt. At, what was their movie theater called? I think it's still there. I have no idea. I can't remember what it is. But Trinity in, in Hartford. I went there because they were showing Seven Samurai, and I'd never seen it. And I went to check it out. And there are these really bad wooden uh, like auditorium-like seats. They're very, very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I sat through this whole thing, and it was a revelation to me. It really was watching this film on the big screen. I instantly fell in love with it. I'm like, I loved Rashomon. Let me see what Seven Samurai is all about. This is supposed to be the big film, right? And uh, it is, as the kids say, a masterpiece. So it is my number one as well. Any honorable mentions for you? Yeah, um, I would give a shout-out to The Seventh Seal, the Ingmar Bergman film, where it's a knight plays a game of chess with death. Uh, the Royal Tenenbaums. Again, back to your Kurosawa and Yojimbo, uh, Pan's Labyrinth, mm-hmm. and a creepy one that mm-hmm. I think is underappreciated, Night of the Hunter. I love Night of the Hunter. Absolutely agree. That's a great pick. That's an honorable mention for me. Um, I'd throw in Cronenberg's uh, Scanners. Mm-hmm. That Criterion set is pretty sharp. Uh, Tarkovsky's Stalker. And, of course, i got to give some love to Moon Age Daydream, of course. But then, Matt, when I, I'm actually... Rewatching it right now, I think I got like 20 minutes left to go. Is Carol Reads the Third Man, mm. uh, which is one of my favorite noirs set in uh, post war Austria, where uh, this guy comes to f- hook up with his friend who's going to offer him a job, but his friend has been killed. And he goes in a, he starts to figure out basically what happened to his friend. How, how was he killed? What and who killed him? And it's a great film by uh, Carol Reed, but it's got some great features. Particularly one of my favorites is the commentary on there. Is there's one with Steven Soderbergh and Tony Gilroy, which is really interesting to listen to. So there you go, folks. Those are our uh, five favorite plus more Criterion releases. I'm sure there's some we're forgetting, um, but uh, that's where you can start. The Long Wolf and Cub set is is really cool, right? I'm just looking over right now to my collection. Lady Snowbird, I love. I had recently, I had had that for years. I just started watching it. Um, a couple Albert Brooks films. There's an Albert Brooks documentary on HBO. I really don't want to watch. There's a few of his films are in the Criterion Collection, which is great. Uh, yeah, Repo Man's a good set too. If you haven't seen the Repo Man Criterion set, that's a really sharp looking. So, what's your favorite? Just an email at feedback at the first run dot com. I have Grand Illusion, spine number one. Only in DVD, and it's been out of print for a very long time. So. I like, I'm very happy that I have that one. Feedback at thefirstrun.com. Matt, what's coming up on the big show next week? Well, it's a big twofer. So we're catching up with the Marvels, uh, the latest and last entry of the MCU for 2023. And uh, we're also going to watch Thanksgiving. We'll see white meat, dark meat, all will be carved. (laughs) 
<laughs> in the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. Uh, do a search for the first run. Scroll, scroll, scroll. Eventually, you will find us. Man, we're so close to Nope, aren't we? Yeah, we are. Not Nope. No. No, no don't. Don't. Yeah, don't. No. yeah we, we definitely have to get. That's the one I've been holding out for. I think that's the only one left at this point. Yep. Yeah, all we have left is down. Uh, what else? Uh, go to the website, thefirstrun.com. You can find uh, uh, archives of all the old shows and more. Have a pack Apple Podcast gives for you. It'll help people find the show. Matt, our, our domain just oh. renewed. So happy birthday to mm-hmm. us. So we own it again for another year. I'm very excited about that. And uh, I guess that's it. So let's go ahead and take an extended break. Uh, we love you all very much. Take care of yourselves. And uh, we will see you all soon. What's your name? Jones. Larvel Jones. Monsignor Larvel Jones. MD. Let's go, Mahoney. See you around, Monsignor. Dr. Monsignor. <laughs>